Seven decades ago, the first television adaptation of Superman arrived. Now, it's time to rock it back to the 1952-1958 series Adventures of Superman, starring George Reeves. In this rewatch podcast, my guests and I break down each episode, from its black-and-white crime drama beginnings to the kid-friendly color seasons, as we celebrate one of the most underrated Man of Steel depictions of all time. Welcome to another exciting episode in The Adventures of Superman. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss Season 1, Episode 3, The Case of the Talkative Dummy, is podcaster Chris Clow. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. This is going to be a fun one to talk about. Oh, for sure, man. I had a lot of fun watching this episode, and I can't wait to break it down. This aired October 3rd, 1952, written by Dennis Cooper and Lee Backman, directed by Tommy Carr. Here is our synopsis from the DVD set. As Superman hunts for kidnapped armored car drivers and a stolen fortune, Jimmy, locked inside a failing safe, hurdles to his doom. <laughs> now, I don't mean to to bag on the DVD synopsis. I don't know... I don't know that that really captures the entire spirit of the episode. Jimmy in the safe is part of it, but it's almost more of an aside. It's dealt with rather quickly. It's not what the episode is about. Yeah. Yeah. And it's certainly, I mean, it takes place so late in the episode too, that I'm kind of surprised that it makes the DVD synopsis, but Hey, they, those copywriters, they have to try and hook you right to, to keep you engaged in the set, I suppose. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. So We'll start with some preliminary questions, but let me just take care of uh, some very quick housekeeping here. So it dawns on me, we're three episodes in now, and I don't think I've said this yet in, in either of the first two episodes, but the title of the show, and of course, for fans of Adventures of Superman, you know, but uh, the title of the show derives from that iconic opening narration, which ends with, and now another exciting episode in the Adventures of Superman. So that was the inspiration for the title. For anyone who's wondering, what kind of mouthful of a title is this? Where did it come from? That's where it comes from. And I'm recording ahead. So you and I are recording the third episode now. As of this recording, none of them have aired yet. So I don't know how they're being received. And I hope they're being received well. I hope people are enjoying them. If you are, please rate and review, especially on Apple Podcasts. And of course, social media participation and sharing, that's always a big help. But honestly... If there's one person in your life, audience, <laughs> you know, who's a fellow Adventures of Superman fan and they don't know about this podcast, just tell them. That's, that's my ask of people. Just tell someone about the show if you think they might enjoy it. Because I think that sort of person-to-person -person referral uh, always helps and helps get the show out there. So I really do appreciate it. And last two things, in case you missed it, I have a new article that I wrote for 13thDimension.com, 13 Reasons Why Warner Brothers Discovery Should Stream Adventures of Superman. That was a fun one. So that's mm -hmm. out there in case you missed it, 13thDimension.com. And then finally, in these episodes, we've in the first two, we've been talking about the frustrating lack of availability of Adventures of Superman. It's not streaming as part of a subscription. You can buy them digitally uh, via various platforms. The DVDs are largely out of print. You can find them, but you will pay, you will pay for them. And um, but the, the little addendum to that is it is also airing uh, a couple of places. Uh, and I was informed of this by our episode one guest, Zach Moore, and an upcoming guest, Rich Roney. But the show is currently airing on Heroes and Icons, as well as Decades TV. And these are over-the-air stations. So check your local listings. You might be able to catch some episodes here and there. It's still not, still not what we want and what we need with that, no. that streaming access. But it is another way to watch. So I just wanted to put that out there for everybody. 
Yeah. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that too, because, uh, every weekend my wife and I go over to her parents' place, my in-laws place. And as soon as we arrive, usually like in the late morning, my father-in-law is inevitably watching an episode of the adventures of Superman on one of those over the air stations. So, uh, it's the, the show has always been a part of me and now seeing that, uh, my father-in-law is sharing that interest to it is, is really gratifying. I think he became a bigger fan of it when it was available on DC universe, the, the forerunner to DC universe infinite. And I still kind of mourn DC universe, to be honest with you. As do I. And I, I'll, I won't keep us here long because I don't want to, I don't want to harp on this, but it, it was always fascinating to me when DC Universe became DC Universe Infinite, a comics only, a comics reader only, right? Instead of having TV shows and movies as well. And they really tried to advertise it as this big <laughs> upgrade. It's like, now right. it's infinite, but it has less stuff. It was always, yeah. it was always very counterintuitive to me. I, th- I always thought to myself like, man, that's a ballsy marketing scheme. It's like, you're just, you're, you're taking me. stuff away. And you're adding this infinite designation. It was, look, I mean, I know they had to, you know, there was stuff changing at the corporate level and they did what they had to do, but it was just like, really? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, did it really need a a name change to that degree, especially if you're going to be removing stuff from it? And I mean, around that time too, I'm sure you remember they, uh, you know, they gave existing DC Universe subscribers a little bit of a discount for like the first six months of HBO Max. And they said, don't worry, everything's moving over. But for those of us who are fans of this show, we saw quite a big glaring S-shaped hole in uh, in in the in the HBO Max service that still has yet to be filled, unfortunately. Indeed, indeed. So you know, we'll see. I don't I don't know that my article will necessarily move David Zaslov to action, but at least it's out there. <laughs> at least it's there. Uh, <sighs> So I have a question from, from one of my patrons, Brian, and I'm going to throw it out to you now and you let it marinate. An answer might come to you immediately, but if not, let it marinate. And then when we get to it in the episode, you'll let me know. Brian says about this episode specifically, if you had the opportunity to rewrite one scene in this episode, which would it be? What would you change and why? And I don't, I haven't spoken with Brian about this. I think there might be a scene he's kind of thinking about. But I actually have a different scene that comes to my mind. So I, I kind of know what my answer is. When we get there, I'll share it. So I'll just throw that out there to you and uh, see if anything comes to mind as we're making our way through the episode. If there's any one scene it, that we would yeah. we would give a, a rewrite to. Sounds good. All right. Now, let me toss it to you. When and where and how did you first encounter Adventures of Superman and what role has it played in your Superman fandom? You know, it's funny because um, I I don't think I can really remember the first time I encountered it because uh, my dad was born in 1944, so he was really part of the demographic that would have absorbed this show in its first run, and he told me that he did watch it. Um, but you know, I had seen it here and there when I was a kid, but actually, the thing that um, I actually have very fond memories of. When the original 1948 serial was released on home video, or maybe it was re-released because I think this was in the mid nineties. I bought it and my dad and I watched an episode per week on Saturdays because he used to go to serials like that when he was a kid. And um, so it was, it was interesting because like I had a delayed kind of reaction that I think a lot of uh, Superman fans 
from this time would have gone through because naturally they would have seen the serials first if they wanted to. And then if they upgraded and got a television, they would have watched the show. I kind of discounted the adventures of Superman for uh, an embarrassingly long time. I didn't actually sit down and watch the show all the way through until probably about a year after all of the DVD sets were available. But um, being a, a big Superman fan, I was I knew I was going to get around to it at some point, but it wasn't until I was in college, really, that I s- dedicated time to actually watch it. And I think part of that is because as a teenager, I actually had kind of a um, an aversion to the 60s Batman show. And when you think of the longstanding image that George Reeves has as a 50s era authority figure, at least for me as a teenager, it didn't really conjure up an image of what I love about Superman as like a, an inspirational figure. So I kind of unfairly lumped it in with the 60s Batman show and, uh, and, and dismissed it until I actually sat down and watched it. I've also since come around on the 60s Batman show. It's funny, you know, it's like with more maturity, I have further embraced these more, uh, I guess, radical departures from the original source material. Because when I was a kid, it was all about it's an insult and it's not the dark guy that I and it was it was stupid, frankly. But um, when I finally did watch this show, I was so surprised and taken with the level of truthfulness that George Reeves himself brings to playing this character. And honestly, like when I watch an episode of this show, outside of a couple of specific examples, the aptitude that Reeves brings in terms of his performance and the caliber of actor that he was really blows a lot of the other performers out of the water, frankly, like he is just playing at a whole other level. And that translates into a Superman and a Clark Kent that is relatable that's understandable and is a guy that you really root for. And honestly, too, I feel like a path forward potentially because there's a big conversation right now in, in Superman fandom about what will be next in terms of uh, other media adaptations. People in charge should take a closer look at the show as far as I'm concerned. So I have a lot of affection for this show. I didn't appreciate it until far too late in my time as a Superman fan, but I am exceedingly grateful for when i did absorb it and i just i I love it to death now it's awesome to hear and a lot of that mirrors my own experience you got to Mm. it a lot sooner than i did but just like yourself i initially wrote it off and when those dvds first came out i think that was the first time i had caught episodes here and there as a kid but when those dvds came out i mean i bought the first two seasons because it was superman Right. And I remember starting to watch and I was just like, this isn't, this isn't my Superman. This isn't what I, what I'm looking for. And, you know, it was only within the past couple of years that <laughs> I came back to it and, and just fell in love with it. And I, I echo everything you you said about Reeves. There's this warmth and charm, but also toughness that he brings to both Clark and Superman. And what's especially astounding is that he was able to capture the essence of the character without all of the trappings in terms of a beefed up costume and special effects and, and everything. And that's not to discount the performances that our modern day Superman actors have given. They're wonderful. I, I am a fan of honest. I can honestly say I'm a fan of all of them in some way, shape or form, but 
but there are these other tools, right, that are that are helping to to bring the character to life. And it was so much more limited, you know, back in that time. But you still buy him as Superman. And that's such a testament to just that innate presence that he had. That's a really good way of putting it. I mean, it is presence. Um because you're right. I mean, the enhancement of the suit isn't really there. I mean, there was some for the time, but it was reasonably primitive considering what we're certainly used to now. But without the presence of Reeves, this show would not be nearly as special as it is. And, you know, I recently revisited uh, the serials as well. And I, I like Kirk Allen. I mean, you had to start somewhere, but he had a very kind of uh cavalier attitude as superman and then he was really 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 mild-mannered as clark kent um but you look at the jump from alan to reeves and it's immense you know just the personality that reeves brings to the table and like you said the toughness i'm glad that you pointed that out just because you know we are so used to consuming material with the alter ego where he is maybe a bit timid and reserved but this is a Clark Kent who's not afraid to like get scrappy at times, you know, and, and, and in terms of what you said about the limitations, like with special effects, honestly, I feel like that's a big spot where this show thrives just because it had to be creative with restraint. You know, it's kind of like, it's similar to, um, to, uh, the source of my extreme reverence for the original Star Trek series, you know, like you look at a, modern star trek tv show they spend millions of dollars per episode and they're just like they look like movies or in some cases better than movies on television but the original series it was a shoestring budget and they had to rely on the ideas and the writing for to, to create something that ended up being timeless with the adventures of superman comparatively it probably had a larger budget than star trek did in its time but uh the structure of leaning first on the investigative reporting side and then bringing Superman in right at the end, in most cases at least, to uh, to serve as, as a resolution. It, I mean, these are legitimately interesting investigative plots, I think. So uh, I, I feel like the show really does thrive on that limitation. A thousand percent. That's actually one of the things that I included in that, that list, that article that I wrote for 13th Dimension, was that this show proved you know, exactly what you were saying, that constraints make the artist, and that rather than pushing against the technology of the day and the budget and trying to tell stories that they really weren't equipped to, they leaned into what they were able to do and they did it well. And as much as, yes, it is a product of its time, it still holds up, I think, because they told these smaller scale grounded stories. And not only that, but it also, it offers something else, something different. I guess Lois and Clark, the new adventures of Superman is in that vein, although they obviously were able to do more or attempt more of the superheroics. But, <laughs> you know, but I think that's another one of the reasons why this show should be out there and why people might might come to it now and be pleasantly surprised because it's it's different. It's not, you know, like I love Superman and Lois. I love what they're doing on that show, but totally different stories here. And that's good, right? It offers something a little bit different, a different flavor, a different spin on it. So yeah, man, I, you and I are in lockstep with this. I agree totally. Oh yeah. And it's, I mean, it sounds like it. And I mean, yeah, Superman and Lois, I'm enjoying that show as well. I'm not caught up with it, but everything that I've seen, I've, I've really enjoyed, but it is a very different kind of vibe in terms of episodic television. And with the I guess the general setup of the the flow of episodes, particularly early on in the adventures of Superman, 
I do think it gives a bit of a blueprint as far as the kinds of stories that you can tell, because so much of certainly the cinematic side of Superman is obsessed with the scale. You get away from the very real humanity that you, me, and every Superman fan that gives the character the time of day knows is there and is a big part of who he is. And that beating heart is well represented through the presence of George Reeves. And, you know, I mean, it's funny. Um, it sounds like you and I kind of jumped aboard with the DVD release. So it's amazing what access can provide when it comes to absorbing these shows. Exactly. Exactly. So as far as overall impressions and takeaways from the case of the talkative dummy, one thing that I just want to say right at the outset, because we've sort of been building to this over the first three episodes of the podcast we have finally now arrived at an episode that I would argue is representative of the rest of the series, or at least the first season. Superman on Earth, the premiere, wonderful episode, did a very efficient job of telling the origin story, but that's that's an outlier, right? That's setting up what the character and the show are going to be. Episode two, The Haunted Lighthouse, I, I found some redemption for that episode upon my rewatch for the podcast, <laughs> but I still, it, it still drives me nuts that that was selected second to air. Of course, they were, that's not, this is not the order in which they were produced, but that was the order in which they aired. And Superman doesn't show up until so deep into the episode. And clearly there's this history now that's been established between Superman and the other characters that we haven't yet seen. It was, it, it remains just such a baffling choice to me for episode number two. But here we are at episode three, and we're getting that investigative reporting with the core Daily Planet cast uh, a pretty tight, clever mystery that then ultimately requires the intervention of Superman. I mean, this is really the template for what the rest of the episodes are going to be. And it, you know, it takes us until the third episode to get here, but we're here. Like we're here now. I feel like this is what we're settling in now to what the show is going to be as we move forward. No, I'm inclined to agree with you. I mean, you look at the flow, of course, the first episode is going to need to establish what the players are and what the environments are going to be. And then in the second episode, they just go to a totally different environment. And it is kind of unusual, but at the same time too, I can't, I guess I imagine that uh, since these episodes were likely going to be viewed for, by most people in isolation, maybe they just didn't really think of the sequence in that respect, but still that doesn't negate anything of, regarding what you just said. I mean, it is kind of a strange jump, but you're right. I mean, this one does become pretty indicative of, of how, a lot of the episodes would play out on a structural basis. And um, it really does help to emphasize the interplay between the core characters in a way that uh, it, I, you get less from Perry in this episode than you would get in, in future episodes. But uh, really the dynamics are solidly established and it runs with the, um, with the, the format that it's setting up in pretty brilliant fashion in several later episodes. Absolutely. And we also meet Inspector Henderson, played by Robert Shane in this episode, who will go on to be a regular player on the show. Uh, interesting the way he's utilized here. I feel like this is a very, uh, very short-sighted uh, inspector who, who needs a lot of hand-holding from, <laughs> from these reporters yeah. to do his job. <laughs> but hey. Yeah, it, it, it is kind of unusual, especially when you realize how important he will be. And I mean, Inspector Henderson as a character is kind of an interesting uh example in just the wider superman mythology just because he does seem to have more of a presence in these other media adaptations they've incorporated him into the comics a few times but i think the first time was like 10 years before crisis on infinite earths 
and then uh right after crisis on infinite earths and they just kind of had those uh those core appearances but then his appearances in the comics have been very few and far between it seems like he's been more of a black lightning supporting character than a superman supporting character in recent years or at least like over the past decade uh, maybe he hasn't even appeared in the past decade but um i always thought that the the that inspector henderson presented uh, an interesting um, potential ally for Superman on an ongoing basis. And this show really does exploit that in a really effective way. Not so much here, but you had, again, you had to start somewhere. Absolutely. There's an episode coming up and I, I think it's fairly early on in the first season. We'll, we'll get there soon enough, but I, I don't know if you, if you have a memory of this, but there's a scene where Clark and Henderson have apprehended one of the bad guys and it's, very clear that they're about to rough him up and then you don't actually see the beating but you see the aftermath of it and like their sleeves are rolled up and like clearly they've gotten into it with this guy in custody uh again we'll we'll get to that uh soon but uh, yeah i mean you see them <laughs> working together in all sorts of ways <laughs> i suppose very unique partnership <laughs> for sure and as far as as uh you know notable cast appearances going back to what you were saying about the serials so Pierre Watkin, who played Perry yeah. White in the serials, is uh, Mr. Green in this episode. Did you recognize him immediately? Immediately. Yeah. I mean, I just I, I find that to be such an interesting aspect of this episode. I mean, it was very strange seeing a former Perry White shoot at Superman. right? But uh, no, I mean, um, you know, I, I kind of wonder what the conversations would have been like with cast members from the serial, or if maybe at some point in the development cycle, there was um, any interest at all in bringing like Tommy bond in or, or Noel Neal before she eventually did join the show or maybe even Alan himself. But um, seeing another serial cast member emerge it was a very unusual sensation the first time I watched this episode. And, and that was um, when I had sat down to absorb the show fully because I've seen the serial several times and I actually uh, enjoy them quite a lot. Even just like the animated bits where it jumps to Superman flying. I, I find them charming. But Pierre Watkin would not have fit well on an ongoing basis as Perry White here. I'm glad that they cast John Hamilton. I mean, John Hamilton, when I read an issue of Superman now, his voice is still the voice I hear for Perry White. So, I mean, I think that that's all time casting um, in, in my case, literally. But um, Pierre Watkin, he does have this kind of menace that is interesting. And you see that you, you see a shadow of that when he plays Perry White in the serials. But it's it's just fun to see. It, it looks like he had fun with this. But yeah, it is very odd to watch uh, a former Perry White pull a gun on Superman. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, I, it's so funny because I've only watched the serials once, but I watched them very recently for an episode of Digging for Kryptonite. It was funny when you were talking about how you watch them with your dad, you know, one at a time, you know, you space them out. That's the way to do it because I tried to binge them and man, that was, <laughs> that was rough going. But I felt like an idiot because I did not immediately recognize Pierre Watkin. And then I was on IMDb and I was like, oh, so I don't know. It, uh, I was really kicking well, that, myself after. Oh, no, I, I mean, I understand that because Perry is not particularly memorable in the serials. You know, he, he yells a couple of times, but uh, he's got nothing on John Hamilton's presence either. Like a lot of the performers in this show 
just have such great presence in these roles. And now it's, I mean, um, I, in 2016, I went to the Superman celebration in Metropolis, Illinois, and there's a statue of Noel Neal there. And it's for good reason. I mean, she is like the, a definitive Lois Lane and it was kind of the first lady of Superman uh, for a long time. I did meet her briefly one time at a convention. She was lovely uh, and it was fun to talk to her and just like thinking about her legacy across the entirety of the franchise like she left such an indelible imprint but really a lot of the performers from this show did it wasn't just reeves um you know the, the jack larson i think is still the prototypical jimmy olsen in a lot of respects so it doesn't really surprise me all that much that he didn't stick out to you just because next to john hamilton especially after having absorbed most of this show i mean he just kind of bullies everyone out of the way you know it is true. And, you know, I, I agree with what you said about Noel Neal, though I have to say, and I've uh, on the record saying this and, and it, it bears out again here. Uh, I'm so taken by the Phyllis Coates incarnation of, of Lois. Oh, yeah. And, you know, talking about what, what we're, we're sort of getting now in this third episode, of course, Lois appeared in the series premiere, but it was a you know relatively small appearance because we don't get to Metropolis until the our third act. And, She's MIA from the Haunted Lighthouse. So this is the first episode where we really spend time with Lois and we really get to see more of that Clark Lois back and forth, uh, which is great. And actually that will tee up uh, the first scene that we talk about. So let's take a quick commercial break and then we'll start breaking down the case of the talkative dummy. We'll be right back. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina for people of all ages and walks of life. Since 1983, this nine time Eisner Award nominee uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material available. They pride themselves on their significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection. Mail-order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available to anyone, anywhere, via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the AcmeCast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Film lovers and filmmakers should check out this family of film festivals, Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. I was fortunate enough to have my work shown at these festivals, and I found them to be very enjoyable and well-run events. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals generally, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news and updates about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, be sure to listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and currently under new ownership, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany the next time you're in the Garden State, and be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Flat Squirrel Productions is an affiliate of BCW Supplies. The next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP, that's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions, to save 10% on your order, and it helps support the show. Thank you. Oh Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, 
Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Aya for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit AyaComics.com and follow Aya on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Aya. And we're back. All right, so we open up here, our opening scene. Clark and Lois have taken Jimmy to the theater, a night out for his birthday, uh, to see this uh, ventriloquism act, Marco and Freddy. And it was interesting. You know, of course, you know, the show was always so chaste, right? And of course, like, they all have to go together because, you know, if Jimmy's not there, then Lois and Clark are basically on a date. Mm-hmm. And we can't have that, I guess. Uh, they could no. have been reporting on this, but that's not their regular beat. So they're here. They're yeah. taking Jimmy out for the birthday. The usher, who will play into the story, seats them and wishes Jimmy a happy birthday by name. Jimmy realizes that Clark and Lois have set this up. We get a little bit of that banter right right off the bat because Clark is like, oh, you know, if a guy's birthday only comes around once a year. <laughs> Lois is like, that's a sharp <laughs> observation, Mr. Kent. But he <laughs> likes it. Like, And it's the thing in, in that exchange in particular was that on the page, like if you were just reading that cold, I don't know that there's much there, but the way they brought that to life and there's just this spark that's there. I loved it. There is a sharpness to Phyllis Coates that would not be repeated later. Um, it's hard for me. Like I don't, I, I'm not really interested in picking a favorite between the two predominant lowest lanes of the show because they are both very, very good in their own ways. Phyllis Coates does have this kind of um, this biting wit that seems like it bites a little harder. And that seems to have been something that would really inform Lois in the source material going forward, like even like well into the post-crisis era. This just it feels like a, an exceedingly modern Lois Lane in terms of her assertiveness and uh, in her sense of humor. I, I just I really love what Coates brings to the table. And, um, you know, we, we get to enjoy that for the, for the entirety of the first season, but this core dynamic between the three daily planet principles, uh, is, is really fun to see unfold. And, you know, this is just like really the first major scene in the series that they all have together in this kind of setup environment. And you immediately understand like what the appeal of the show is between these three characters and. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm totally with you. I just love it. I think my favorite moment in this scene is when uh, Marco starts his his act. And, you know, the humor is aimed at a younger audience, I, I suppose. Right. And Jimmy's eating it up. Jimmy loves it. He's laughing. And Lois and Clark exchange this look. It's like, oh, this dumb kid. <laughs> <laughs> but it's great, you know, nothing is spoken between them, but they have, you know, there is this, there is this little, you know, a little antagonist, friendly antagonism between the two of them, but they, ha- they have that little moment that they share, uh, which again, like you said, as far as this core dynamic, you see the, 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 the beat between the two of them and also kind of how they're viewing Jimmy and what Jimmy's place is within this trio. It, they do a lot with just that little look. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it kind of reminded me of, uh, recently we my wife and i took our daughter to the the aquarium in seattle had no idea that it was going to be such a big hit and um when we walked up to the seal tank and a seal goes by and we see our daughter freak out and she's like shaking we exchanged a look that seemed very similar to the one that you just described you know so it's it, it is kind of fun 
to see how that dynamic is just immediately established and established so well. But also, too, I think it's actually rather deftly written because later in the episode, when Jimmy is given a chance to uh, affect things a little bit more and things go south pretty quickly, uh, there is this kind of additional respect that maybe Lois and Clark don't uh, don't give to him. But I think as a viewer, I certainly respected Jimmy more for his willingness and ability to put himself into the middle of the entire fracas. So uh, it, it kind of lulls you into a false sense of security. You watch this kid, he's laughing at these these dummy jokes and everything. But then, you know, when he's in a safe, you're like, wow. He, he gets into it, you know, he hangs with them. It's, it's, it's fun to see. He's got the heart of a hero. He doesn't always have he the, really does. the yeah. ability, right? But he has the heart. He has the heart for sure. So the act is going on and then all of a sudden it's interrupted. There's another voice that's speaking at the same time as the ventriloquist and is talking about uh, the shade under the apple tree down by the old mill stream, 11 and a half when the ventriloquist is trying to to talk about the dummy being 14 and we keep getting this interruption 11 and a half and the ventriloquist just gets up and goes backstage. Of course, our team follows him back there. What was your take on this scene backstage with Marco, the ventriloquist? I liked it. Um, You know, it, 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 it seemed like maybe it kind of slowed down the plot a little bit because it is a, pretty fascinating setup you know i mean i relatively recently watched uh the maltese falcon again and it's funny how like a show clearly designed to be consumed by kids maybe it's because it's shot in black and white and presented as such but it does seem to have a little bit of a harder edge and even this ridiculous scenario of uh of of someone interrupting a dummy show just seems like it's got this sense of menace that the episodes in color certainly lost. You know, it's, it's, it's just, it's funny to, to see how that compares, but then the, uh, the actual conversation with the ventriloquist himself, uh, there was just like this spark of determination between everybody to try and figure out what was happening here. And I thought that it was a, a, a nice way to illustrate how deeply, Lois and Clark want to go as investigators. It's just a nice way to introduce the audience. Maybe if they had never been accustomed to seeing them like this before, uh, that something even as innocuous as a dummy show gets their antennae up and, and ignites their sense of curiosity to, to see this through. So I appreciated it. Oh, you know, I like that you said that. That wasn't necessarily where my head went with that, but that is a great point because, right, as we'll find out as the episode unfolds, the interruption during the dummy act is the delivery mechanism to uh, to tip off the robbers, right, who are going to affect this armored robbery later on. Uh, and we'll get more into that as, as the episode unfolds. But you're right. At that point, Lois and Clark don't know anything other than there was this other voice during the dummy act. And that's enough, right, like you said, to, to set them off, which is, is great. I, I guess what I was focusing on in this episode was the in the scene is this ventriloquist because before Lois and Clark and Jimmy go back there, he's he's berating the dummy. And he's like, it's not enough that I give you the best lines. You got to go off script. And then when Lois and Clark come back there, you know, they're trying to present these alternative theories, other 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 something else that could be at play to account for this. Like maybe it's a, a rival ventriloquist who's trying to interfere with his act. And 
going back to my my patron Brian's question, this is the scene that I would have I would have tweaked a little bit because I feel like the ventriloquist is largely played as being off his rocker for most of it, where it seems like he thinks the dummy is actually speaking. I don't know. I mean, it's a little <laughs> unclear exactly what's in his head. Yet, when we get later in the scene, he does have this moment of self-awareness where he's like, oh, of course it wasn't Freddy at all. So he he has this moment of clarity. I would have I would have picked a lane. I would have either made it like he was really just this kooky ventriloquist who thought that his dummy had a mind of his own, or he was a little more grounded in reality and was a, a little bit more cooperative, I guess, during this <laughs> during this bit of questioning. Again, this isn't the hill I'm going to die on here. It's, it's, it didn't ruin the episode for me. But if I were going to tweak anything, it was just sort of like, what is the deal with this guy? And then it felt like we had a little bit of a pivot in the scene. I would have, like I said, I would have just picked a lane with that. Yeah, it's almost like um, a, a first appearance of Arnold Wesker 35 years before he actually showed up in comics, right? I mean, it's, uh, it, it, it is a little unusual because you don't, with a show like this, a fantasy show for all intents and purposes, like it wouldn't be too far outside the realm of possibility, especially so early on where it's like, oh, are these the rules? Like, is this guy maybe not quite sane or is this just all in good fun it's early enough that they could they, there's wiggle room to establish that maybe something else could have been going on with him mentally so i totally see where you're coming from <laughs> <laughs> all right so from there we go to the daily planet the next day and perry sends lois and clark on assignment to go to uh to mr green's is it harry green is that his first name yes okay uh, to Harry Green's armored car service for a follow-up story, right? Because his one of his armored cars had gotten hit and disappeared previously. And Perry wants a follow-up. He wants to know if they've implemented any new measures to prevent something like this from happening again. This this was awfully convenient, I guess, that uh, this was the story that they happened to be assigned given everything that's going to unfold. But, you know, we, we have to have an episode here, so it, it works. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... It does seem like, especially considering, didn't they establish that the first robbery happened some time beforehand? Yes. So how? I mean, it, you could argue that it's a little convenient that all of these things converge in such a such a narrow way. But yeah, I mean, it's it's just the structure of the episode. Um, not uh, an overly uh, ambitious outing here for John Hamilton as Perry White, of course, but. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's fine. It accomplishes what it needs to do. And it sets our, our principal characters off to, to figure out exactly what's going on. But, um, yeah, things got a little bit more interesting. I think by the time that Lois and Clark actually did turn up to talk to Mr. Green. Yeah, for sure. And again, that bit of convenience, I'll, you know, I, I can get behind because I have to say, I know we talked about how the scene with the ventriloquist maybe slowed stuff down a little bit, but for the most part, I mean, this episode moves like there was really a lot, you know, a lot going on. So I, I, I enjoy, like, it definitely felt like a faster paced episode. Um, like it, when it was over, I was like, oh wow, like that kind of flew by. Uh, so next yeah. we're in, yeah. So next we're in Mr. Green's office and, uh, Lois is taking some pictures and, uh, there's Mr. Green, of course, who runs the company behind the desk. And then there's this associate, Mr. Davis, who Green is trying to pull in for photo. And Davis is noticeably reluctant. But mm -hmm. but Green is like, no, no, come on, it's okay. And gets him to take the photo. And of course, this will play out later. 
I'll, uh, I mean, you know, we could, we, you know, we could, we don't have to hold the spoilers back until we get there, but I kind of like going through the episode as, as it unfolds. But sure. I, I will just say, I think the episode does a really good job of establishing Davis as a red herring. And I say that because for us watching, and of course, in our case, we're not watching for the first time. So we, we know the, the whole beat, the beats of this, but um, even what, even if we were watching it for the first time through adult 2022 eyes, Yes, I think we would probably see the tells. There are a couple very clear ones if, you know, if, if you're, I guess, a little a little bit savvier. But I think about an audience, a young audience in the 50s, right? I think this episode actually does a good job of, you know, kind of making you think it's going to be Davis, especially going back to Pierre Watkin. I feel like, especially for people who knew, and the serials had just come out, you know, within the past couple of years, people probably were less inclined to see him as the bad guy. So I think a lot of, a lot of these pieces came together nicely to create a, you know, a, a satisfying uh, surprise at the end of the episode. Oh, I totally agree with you. And I think that um, Davis having this reluctance, um, it was a little understated, at least. I mean, if, if you were to have this, the plot of this episode and these specific events described to you, uh, or at least described to me, then I would probably assume that a 1950s TV show that's aimed at a younger audience would make these kinds of things super obvious. But the performance is actually pretty even keeled. And I and I appreciated that because for those kids who are, you know, sitting in front of their television set, maybe they've got a towel draped around them and secured with a safety pin, you know, if they're really engaged and they're they're working to figure this out along with the, with the reporters from the Daily Planet, this could be a pretty cool like uh, culmination for them by the time they get to the end of the episode. So, you know, it's still appropriate for the audience that it's aimed at, but at the same time too, it's just like kind of one of the strengths of George Reeves in general in this show is that there is this kind of understated quality that you may not expect. Uh, to be there in the show, but it's totally there right from the beginning. And I think this is a good example. Yeah. Especially in this first season where it really was a crime drama. It was, I, they were very, I think for the most part, they were interesting, satisfying uh, uh, mysteries in, in most of these episodes. Yeah, most definitely. So Green talks about the new safety measures they've implemented where only he and Davis are the only two people who know the routes that the armored cars are going to take. And they seal them up in envelopes and they lock them up in the safe. And it's foolproof. He, he's foolproof. He says it multiple times. And uh, of course, the next scene immediately is uh, the armored car getting hit. <laughs> Which, what, what did you think of this, of this whole sequence? Because I'll be honest, I was very pleasantly surprised that they even showed this. Sure. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I, I think the thing that immediately struck me was just that it seemed so brazen, you know, because it's supposed to be like in the middle of the day and and they're still going through with such a robbery like it. Um, but no, I mean, I appreciated that because it does establish um, a, a sense of danger that uh, might put a, a, a kid on edge watching this show, especially by the time that uh, it's a job for Superman. So, um, you know, I think that it, it just, it feels like, like a lot of this show does, it just feels like it's got some teeth to it that you might not expect if you go into watching the show with a preconceived notion about what a, 
a TV series aimed at kids that aired in the 1950s would be like. And um, I remember watching this episode for the first time on my DVD set. And this was the episode that kind of convinced me that, wow, for an episode that's called The Case of the Talkative Dummy, there is quite a sense of a palpable sense of danger here that I just was not expecting. And uh, I think that the the robbery is critical in illustrating that. And as the show goes on, there are several other instances where it's also the case. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, I, I say pleasantly surprised because given given the show's you know limited means, and you know, we know this was made on a very tight budget, and they were they were filming them quickly. I wouldn't have been surprised if we just heard about the robbery after. So, like, I really appreciated that they showed it, and I think it's. It it's it really contributes to the effectiveness of the episode for all the reasons that you just said. Like I'm I'm so glad that they did it, but again I'm also surprised because I feel like they, they could have kind of gone around it, but instead we follow this car, and it turns out the driver is in on it and knocks out the other guard. Uh, we had another decoy car that was there to kind of slow them down on the road, uh, and then we see them load up the armored car onto this larger flatbed truck with the covering on it, right? And that accounts for how. We know, you know, in the past, one of the cars had just disappeared, right? So now we get to see, actually see how something like that plays out. So it was a, yeah, it was a cool sequence. And I felt like it gave the show a, a bigger, you know, like scope and scale because you actually got to be out in the world on location on these 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 country roads outside Metropolis. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, location work in shows of this year is critical in establishing like a broader sense of the world. And um, there's granted, you know, a lot of the locations that you do see in this show going forward are not abundantly distinctive, but they also don't need to be considering the stories that are being told. But the fact that they do go to that level is nice. And it does help to uh, give a broader sense of, uh, of of the geography of play, which is always fun. And, you know, it's like Superman could probably fly between the Daily Planet and the Metropolis Police Department pretty fast, but maybe getting out to where a robbery like this is taking place might take a little bit longer. So it serves a practical purpose too. Totally, totally. So after we see this robbery uh, enacted, uh, we're back in the Daily Planet. Now, what struck me was we see Jimmy in the newsroom. I don't recall, I mean, again, I'll, I'll have a better sense as I make my way through this first season, but I don't recall a ton of scenes at all in the newsroom. They're almost always in one of their offices, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's my impression as well. Um, you know, it's been a while since I've actually watched the show all the way through because it's not as available as I would like it to be. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, I, I think you're right. Most of the memorable scenes and certainly um, representations of the show that would show up in other media later, usually focus on these office scenes, whether it's Perry's office or Clark's office, you know, that's, where they choose to congregate. So I don't know, maybe it's something that they were going to have uh, as a more prominent feature to, to kind of show how Jimmy floats around the entire organization. But it, it does seem unusual now that you mention it. Yeah, it just stood out to me because I guess one of the things that always makes me laugh about the show is like, are there any other reporters here? <laughs> and so actually now you get to see you get to see some of them for for a few seconds before they make their way into, I think it's Lois's office in, in this yeah, case. Yeah. But there's John and Fred and, you know, all, all, all the regulars that are in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so in the office now, in a classic office scene, uh, we see our trio put the pieces together. They're talking about this robbery and they realize that the location 
the location and the time that this occurred lines up with those interruptions that the audience heard uh, at the at the theater uh, the other night. So now that the pieces are starting to fit together and Lois and Clark are going to go to Henderson to lay this out for him and Jimmy wants to go, but he has other business and they send him off back to, to Mr. Green's office. Uh, then we meet Henderson. All right, so we have the Inspector Henderson debut and Again, Clark really does a lot of the police work for him in this. He like <laughs> lays out <laughs> he lays out the entire scheme here. This idea that someone is tipping off the usher with this information that the usher delivers via these these interruptions during the dummy act, uh, meant to deliver the information to other other individuals who will then enact the actual uh, robbery. I thought it was a like again, especially. For a 50 show aimed at kids, like I thought it was a clever, it was a clever setup, this whole, this whole scheme. I, I like the fact that there were all of these different moving parts uh, to it. Uh, you know, it could have been a lot simpler. I like that they, they built it out the way they did. Yeah. And they actually do a fair amount around this time too, to establish like how deep the, the criminality runs with this group of people, which I thought was just kind of a fun aspect to throw onto it again. I mean, bringing up the the nature of coincidence in a show like this is probably an asinine exercise it's just that's just going to be the way that it is but it does keep the pace of the episode pretty dynamic you know and i i think that that's something that they certainly prioritized considering the the key demographic that they were going for but um really th- this show does uh, th- there's not a lot of fat on this show. You know, it's, it's a pretty lean episode, all things considered granted. They were all, you know, roughly between 25 and 27 minutes. Um, but, and commercial breaks for shorter, of course, but really like this is, this scene is a good example of how uh, good smart casting from character actors just kind of helps to keep things going. And there's a little bit of the mustache twirling brand of villainy going on here, but it's not from the key players. And I think that that's a, a critical component of the tone of the show, um, because you know the, you could argue probably that the mustache twirling kinds of villains were a distraction from what the the main um, the main direction of the plot was going to be. So it's a like I don't know if I would necessarily go out of my way to describe the adventures of Superman generally as sophisticated, but there is a higher degree of sophistication than I think people would expect considering the kind of show that it is. Yeah. Again, especially in these early seasons. I mean, I, I think this will be a theme on this podcast as well, because I, I'm very partial to the first two black and white seasons and yeah. uh, less so. And, you know, I, I'll, <laughs> half the series is in color and they're, you know, very, uh, you know, very kid friendly and, uh, you know, just a, a far lighter tone and atmosphere professor so, pepperwinkle right yeah i mean yeah. the you know we'll get there but the first color episode they travel through time i mean it's yeah. it's you know it's, it's just a whole different beast i mean it's really you look at the adventures of superman and it's really two shows at least sure i think even you can even draw a line between the first and second seasons and then the and then the and then the color years as well, but which is unusual because too, I mean, shooting it in color was forward thinking. Like a lot of TV set, the color was not a predominant fixture in people's homes by the time they were shooting it in color. They were future proofing it basically. So you know, it's just like there's like shooting Smallville in HD. You know, a lot of people didn't have HD TVs when that show started, but they certainly would grow to have them. And uh, but it is funny. To, 
to see such a sharp departure in tone by the time you do get there. Exactly. But, you know, when we get there, I will keep an open mind. But for now, I'm enjoying living in these black and white years, which, you know, for me, that's my favorite part of the series. So we follow James Bartholomew Olson, because he gives his full name when he's talking Mm -hmm. to Mr. Green in the office here, uh, (laughs) to pick up photos from Green. But, you know, when we first go to the office, Green is on the phone with Henderson. He seems irate that another one of his his trucks was hit. His clients are going to lose faith in him. He puts on a good show. I mean, it really seems like he is he is upset about all of this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, there is a, a menace at play there. That's pretty fun to watch. And, um, again, you know, it, it just really does kind of amp up the pressure a little bit as, uh, we're, we're getting close to the first, it's not even a shirt rip in this episode, of course, and the shirt shirt rip actually wasn't much of a staple in this show, but, uh, the first changeover. And, um, I appreciate how uh how the cadence of the danger is just kind of it's it seems like it's barely touched at first and then it accelerates pretty quickly to the point where it requires the intervention of uh of someone who's bulletproof you know so it's it's just like this is just another one of those fun elements that does kind of give you an early look at the structure of a lot of episodes going forward but um, the the I don't know, there's just something about the way that it establishes uh, the cadence here that I find really invigorating to watch, frankly, especially knowing what's going to come later. Well said. No, I, I agree with that. So we follow Jimmy as he overhears a conversation between the usher and Mr. Davis. And the usher has only been getting his instructions over the phone, but he says, oh, I saw your photo in the newspaper, right? So now we see everything kind of tying together here where Green wanted to make sure that Davis was in the photo. Um, Although now I'm actually thinking, when did this, does the timing make sense here? Because if Jimmy was just picking up the photos, did the photos actually run yet? Uh, I mean, you would think that they wouldn't have, but... Because the usher does specifically say, I saw your photo, right? That was... Yeah. Yeah, all right. I Yeah, it might be a little bit of a plot hole there. That's all right. But... uh, you know, we're, we're, we talk about the convergence of coincidences, right? And I think that that's yeah. something here. But basically, you know, maybe- the, the usher shaking him down for more money and saying that uh, he he knows that Davis is actually an ex-convict who, had ch- you know, changed his name. And what I thought was cool about the scene, and I actually did watch it twice. I, basically, I've been watching each of these episodes twice in preparation for the podcast. I watch it once just on its own and just to enjoy it and get the overall feel of it. And then I go back and I'll take some notes and stuff like that. And especially upon rewatch, what was cool about it is the way that it's written and played by the actor uh, doing Davis, his reaction doesn't really give a lot away. Like if you don't know where it's going yet, it seems like he could be the guy who's behind this, right? And he doesn't want to be shaken down and uh, that's why he's pushing back the way he is. But then upon rewatch, you realize like he's not... He doesn't give anything away. He doesn't admit to anything, right? He mostly just tells this guy, get out. But the reaction, I thought, like, it it kind of walks a nice line where if you're not quite sure where it's going, it could be taken either way. Either he is in on it and he, you know, wants to, you know, he doesn't want his position threatened now or or he's not. And it's this is like a, an entirely new problem that's coming up and he's trying to, still the same result, right? Try to get this guy out of there. But I like the way that mm-hmm. it could work both ways. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just... I, Again, I appreciate the way that the plot is layered for this show because it just seems like 
there is a lot of um, uncharacteristic attention to detail in the way that the actual plot is going to lay out. And there is a bit of a swerve, but like not to jump too far ahead, but it is setting something up here that is swerved by the time we do get to the end of the episode. And um, the first time I watched this, I wasn't sure if, uh, if that was just something that was going to be like a trademark of how these plots actually shake out. But again, that is that does indicate, at least to me, that there is a bit of a higher level of, of sophistication in terms of the actual plotting of the show. And it keeps things interesting. You know, there's a lot of dynamics at play that are being put on the board specifically in these few minutes. And uh, and it really does keep the, the pace of the entire episode running right up through the end. Yeah, totally, totally. And so our, our next little sequence here, we see Jim get get taken, get knocked out and stuffed in the safe. Now, I, I think this is really the, the the first major, major tell where you don't see the person doing this. You only see the hands or even just one hand, um, which it's like, of course, if it actually were Davis, I mean, we've just now gotten the sense. It seems like he's the one who's behind this. If it were him, why would you not see him? So I think this is the first big tell of like, OK, maybe it's not actually Davis. And we have a very small pool of suspects here. So at this point, I think it starts to become clear, okay, Green is actually the one behind all of this. But uh, in any event, you know, you're, you're worried for Jim here. He gets stuffed in this safe, uh, which happens to be uh, scheduled for removal. It's going to be right. <laughs> lowered outside the window. These poor guys lug- lugging this uh, safe. Like, this thing's heavier, heavier yeah, than heavier we thought. Than I thought, yeah. <laughs> and they strap these ropes to it, and then the ropes start to break because it's heavier than they were expecting. And poor Jim's And the freight inside. elevator is broken, of course. Yeah, freight so. elevator is broken. And Green is really, you know, he's asking Davis. He's like, have you seen that, you know, Jim Olsen? And you know, Davis is like, no. And, you know, Davis we know is shaken from the conversation he just had with the usher, but it plays as potentially that, you know, he's acting that way because he just stuffed Jim in his safe. Like, it's... I, it really, uh, again, I, I really appreciated the way this was all, this was all put together. Yeah. It's, it's, a, a again, it's setting up the swerve that we're going to get later. And, but there is enough here that someone could probably start to put it together. You know, is it, weren't the, the, the hand that actually went over his mouth, wasn't it like a fingerless glove too, that was like, that went over him and, had the, and it was just like, this feels very sinister. Like this is probably... This would be too racy for a show today uh, aimed at the same demographic. I mean, I've watched a lot of children's TV recently. (laughs) So uh, it just it does seem like there is a a sense of menace that they were able to get away with, especially considering that this is still, you know, the strength of the Hayes Code era in cinema. Right. But television, you know, maybe it was able to play a little bit faster and looser with some of those rules. But um at least not with, well, we mentioned the chasteness earlier on. So that stuff is well intact. But, uh, or, you know, that also brings to mind the 2006 documentary, The Look Up in the Sky. I know um, where you're going. Go for it. Yeah, the Kellogg's <laughs> commercial. Because uh, Kellogg's was a sponsor of this show. And uh, Jimmy and Clark wake up to breakfast. And Perry is there, too, for some reason. Lois is nowhere in sight because you can't have Lois wake up next to Clark, but having Jimmy wake up next to Clark's totally fine. Totally fine. And yeah. Perry showing up there too, for some reason is totally okay. But yeah. Hey, it was hilarious. I remember that in that documentary, it was absolutely hilarious. It's like, <laughs> what? what's going on here guys? 
but in i mean in that same respect too though i mean just like the the level of danger that is illustrated in these few moments like it just it does seem pretty harrowing uh considering but maybe you're able to get away with that more because it's a superman show i'm not sure yeah i suppose although just going back to the commercial for a second the thing that i always wondered was why not just make this the break room at the Daily Planet? Yeah, it like right there, problem solved. You know, like they show up oh, to I'm running work. late. Yep, I didn't have time to eat breakfast at home. I'll pour myself a bowl of Kellogg's here. Like that solves all the problems. Why does it have to be at Clark's apartment? Right. And then you have all yeah. these questions about like who's who's there? When did they get there? How long have they been there? It's it's I was running late, Jim. Well, Kent, that's why I have Frosted Flakes in the office just for this purpose. Enjoy. Exactly. This seems like such a such an easy fix, but yeah. in any event, now we get to uh that this is my favorite this is my favorite moment of of the entire episode where uh you know, lo, so but before when Jimmy was taken, he was on the phone with Perry, right, trying to let him know. So Perry knows that something's up and he tells Lois and then Lois and Clark are in the car on their way to Green's office. And uh they're stopped at a light and they look up and they see the safe. Do you want to you want to do the honors here? Do you want to, do you want to uh, lay out what? Because I know I've been laying out all the plot beats, but this is such a fun moment. You want to do the you want to do the honors? I mean, Clark is frustrated because it's a light and Jimmy's in danger, and of course this has to happen right now. Which I mean, yeah, it happens even now, right? You want to get somewhere, there's going to be a light in front of you. Um, but then he sees the safe out of the corner of his eye, points Lois to look at it along with him. And then, you know, without any uh, any subterfuge or any attempt at subterfuge, he lets the x-ray vision run loose. You actually see Jimmy inside. And, you know, the additional detail of the sweat glistening, I appreciate it because it just adds to just the, the level of discomfort that he must be feeling in addition to being in a safe and suspended, uh, you know, dozens of feet above the ground. Can I just say in the haunted lighthouse, the episode before he's also sweating profusely when he's walking yeah. along the shore. So <laughs> two episodes in a row where the very sweaty Jimmy. He's just, they, they put this kid through the ringer every time. <laughs> and Clark just yells really at the top of his lungs. Jim's in that safe. And Lois is just like totally clueless. And the camera moves to her specifically. And then when she turns to talk to Clark, he's not there. And it's it's finally time to to let the cape fly. Yeah, I mean, he runs into the alley. Superman comes out. It's a it's a great moment. But the it's Jim. He's in the safe. <laughs> is to me the 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 best moment of this episode. And like I said at the beginning with the with Brian's question, would you rewrite anything? I, again, I'm purely speculating. I don't know if this is what he was referring to, but I, maybe it was this scene. But you know what? No, I would just leave it as is because it is so funny to me. Look, we're Smallville guys, right? How many yeah. times in 10 years was someone like, Clark, how'd you get here so fast? How did you not get injured? He's like, well, just lucky, I guess. There's always something, even if it's yeah. the flimsiest excuse. He musters something here. And that's the thing. You know, you can chalk it up to lazy writing or plot hole or whatever. But I just look at it as like, this Clark is such a badass. It's like, he can't be bothered. He's not going to, because he could have said, that looks that looks too heavy. Or I right. saw it swerving like there's someone pushing. I mean, look, he could have he could have said anything, but no, he's just like, oh, it's Jim. He's in the safe. <laughs> no explanation. <laughs> we're stopped at nothing. a light. I really have to go to the restroom. And just, I mean, it could have been anything. That too. It's so. I mean, I I love that moment. Like I wouldn't change that because I I think that's just again part of the charm of the show. It just made me laugh. It's beautiful. 
Oh, I wouldn't change it either. I mean, it, it but it also brings to mind too, uh, there is a couple of instances later in the show where Jimmy and Lois come to Clark's apartment and he's not wearing his glasses. And, you know, all things considered, George Reeves does not have like a delineated countenance between Clark Kent and Superman. But they just go along with their conversation. Like they're talking to Clark. They don't, they, they see nothing of Superman when they are talking to Clark without his, uh, his disguise in place. And uh, there is just like this, they, they just kind of danced around that issue. They didn't exactly bear hug it, but they just kind of made it a non-issue, which is, is a definitely another take on it. But um, it is really interesting to see how, like how disregarding Clark will be, at least it looks like for his identity's integrity, but you know, he just, he doesn't let the danger stand in his way either. So this show plays fast and loose with what a lot of Superman fans are accustomed to in terms of the rules and the dynamics in place for the separation between the identities. And this might've been the first look at that. Yeah. You know, it's what, what's so fascinating though, is that, it it works in its own way because I think even going back to Superman on Earth at the very end where Lois is like, how did you get to the, you know, the, the guy who was hanging from the blimp? Like, how'd you get there so fast? And he's like, I must be a Superman, right? And there are a lot of, a lot of, a lot of buttons on these episodes where he makes some kind of, you know, crack and wink sometimes right at the camera, right? About being Superman or I flew or, you know, something like that. And I don't know, part of me is like that almost works better then it's like, it, it, you know, he makes a joke at it. It's like, well, I must be Superman. And then they're like, oh, okay. You know, and then that kind of like puts them off of it. It's, I don't know. It, I think it works better than if he he were really going out of his way to to like really try to disabuse them of that notion. I feel like by leaning into it and like almost making a joke out of it, <laughs> um, again, not so much here specifically, but in other episodes, it works oddly enough. It does. And it also seems like kind of a blueprint for some of the ways that you would see the Clark Lois dynamic play out in, in like the early issues after he revealed his identity to her post-crisis, you know, because it's just like he has this inclination. He's a man of action, right? If, if something's going to happen, he rushes to it and he just implicitly trusts her to cover his tracks if necessary. You know, it's just like, it's another one of those things that, I feel like maybe we would have gotten to see in a hypothetical Superman sequel in the DCEU, but we never got to, um, you know, Superman and Lois understandably has kind of moved beyond those typical dynamics. So we don't really get to see that now. I guess you saw shadows of it in, in Smallville, like in the later seasons, but by and large, you know, this does not seem particularly out of place in terms of a modern Superman characterization. And that's another thing that, I appreciate about this too. It just seems like John Byrne was a fan of this show, you know, and and I think that that's kind of a a, a cool way to to explore the character, especially when the edict at that time was to modernize him. And uh, it's, it's 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 fun to see how those kinds of things trace back to this show, and it really, to me at least, emphasizes just how influential this show and these characterizations and these performers in particular were on the legacy of Superman. Totally. And, and especially when you talk about burn and that post-crisis iteration, I mean, that was Clark in the comics being very competent, very capable. He wasn't the, the mild mannered, 
guy who's, you know, fumbling all over himself, right? And I think that goes right back to this this Reeves incarnation. I mean, I think you can definitely see see those parallels there. So we get this save uh, by Superman. Superman catches the safe. I thought they did a good job of uh, of, yeah. of realizing that on screen, and it opens the door and 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 helps Jim out. and And this is where, like, this scene, <clears throat> everything that we were talking about earlier on about the charm and the presence, that innate quality that he has, it's here in this moment when he when he gives that smile and wink to Jim, and he's like, "Better stay out of people's safes now, Jim." And it's just yeah. like it's so comforting and reassuring and it and you look at it and it's like of course like of course kids who are watching this in the 50s and then later in reruns in the 60s and 70s like of course they would be so taken with this and and this version of the character and and that that essence is just right there in that scene i loved it yeah it's funny because i thought of uh again going back to that documentary elliot magan talked about just the reassuring quality that that George Reeves had as Superman he was just kind of like he's like your dad you know but he's he's just he's gonna catch you when you fall especially if you're in a safe and, and the safe falls right but um no it's it's to me this is like a really strong microcosm of every single positive component that George Reeves brings to the table as Superman specifically because um, not only does he have that reassuring countenance that you want and expect from him, but he gives his own individual flourish to it, of course. But even just like the way he rips the door off of the safe, he gives such a sense of flourish to everything. And, you know, Jack Larson talked about, and I mean, you see it in later episodes of the show, the way that Reeves pushed through the walls so that the pieces just popped out everywhere. And it's just like this really striking and dynamic uh, scenes of Superman busting through to save the day, literally. Um, and, you know, the way that he positioned himself when he swung into a room, you know, they had the pole outside of the shot and he would swing in and just like the, the leaping through the windows that he would do. He is such a kinetic Superman, which is still even more astonishing to me today, considering the limitations of the show. Like he's so fun to watch. And it looks like he's having fun with it too. So whether he was or not is probably debatable, but still like there is just such a good, strong sense of identity from this Superman. And you really get that emphasized the the first moment that you actually see him in costume here. And especially, and and again, I know I keep coming back to this idea, especially in these, in these early seasons, but it's true. I mean, he was, he, he was younger, he was in better shape. I mean, you know, you, you see the progression physically over the course of the series. And I think that dynamic quality isn't there in the later seasons, the way it is here. And so you watch this and it's like, and I think what I, what I particularly like is yes, there is that somewhat paternal sense, but he still feels like young and vibrant. It, you know, he yeah. doesn't, he doesn't feel like, you know, a, a dull dad or anything like that. It, it's right. a, it really works so well here. So this was a, a great moment. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll get to the final scene in, in or the, the climax in a moment, but I did feel like the climax was a little, a little bit small in this episode uh, when we get to that confrontation with Green in the office, but they gave us this, this mid episode, you know, mid air rescue. And I feel like that, that, you know, kind of, uh, you know, counts for a lot. So I, I can uh, overlook a slightly, and I don't know, debatable whether or not it's anticlimactic later, but I can overlook that even if it is. Cause I feel like this was a cool, this was a really cool moment to have earlier in the episode. Yeah. I mean, it just gives credence to the, 
the power of Superman, you know, and, and, and the way that the show was able to emphasize that power relatively limited, all things considered. But when it had those moments, I mean, it leaned into them. Those, those practical effects largely still stand up today. And uh, I mean, there's no real other, unless Superman is like picking up a ship or something, there's no real other way to show that on the screen. And I mean, this really does help to set the template uh, and the serials before it, but this still, I think, took it in a in a broader direction. Um, and you do get the sense of power, but you, like you said, the the exuberance is there too, in spite of the fact that he does have this paternal quality. There is this youthful exuberance that he just bleeds every second that he's on screen, and it adds to his charismatic quality too. I mean, I can totally see why little boys watching this show in the 1950s became such big superman fans because you have this very strong personality at the center of it and that's really the thing that takes you through the entire show yeah the the physical exuberance you're right is absolutely diminished by the time we do get to like the the latter half of the color episodes in particular but he does still maintain the the this charm that is sadly not associated enough today with Superman, you know, um, you know, Christopher Reeve brought it in a particular way while he was in the costume. Um, but George Reeves as Clark Kent just, just exudes effectiveness. And as Superman is just like a guy that you would follow into the gates of hell. I mean, there's just such a unique quality to him that cannot be overstated in my estimation. Again, well said. I, I echo all of that. And and again, this this idea we keep coming back to of the 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 charm, but the toughness, right? Because when we do get to that final scene with with Green and Davis in the office, when he when he you know bursts in through the window, you know it's, it's as charming and reassuring as he was with Jimmy. It's like when he lands in that office there, it's like oh, like these guys better watch out. Like he had it was just that perfect balance here, where it's like yeah, if you're on the right side, <laughs> he's your best friend. But it's like you better you know you, you better do the right thing. Yeah. Uh, and so I, mean, and I love having that. If you're a criminal, he's your worst possible nightmare, you know? I mean, quite quite literally. I think that um the some of the uh issues that were co-written by Jeff Johns and Richard Donner did try to emphasize that in their own way. It's those still understandably feel most descended from Christopher Reeve, but the there is like that immediate post-infinite crisis era of Superman comics. Uh, which we've discussed previously, um, it does have this kind of Reevesian quality to it that I appreciated. And it, I mean, I, I can't say for sure, but it might have opened me up more to the possibilities of this show uh, because I, I saw it there first. Like that exact idea that you, uh, that you very artfully express is that if you are on the right side, he's reassuring, he's good, he's there for you. And if you're on the wrong side, God help you, you know? Yeah. Because while we don't see it in this episode, I mean, this is a Superman, especially in this first season, he engages in fisticuffs with yeah. the bad guys. You know, later on, it becomes more of just a karate chop and will knock their heads together. But <laughs> in this first season, man, he mixes it up. He's throwing punches. It's, yeah. it's, it's so dynamic. I'm excited to get uh, into some more of those episodes. But in any event, after the save of Jimmy, now we're back at the theater with Lois and Clark and Henderson 
And uh, Clark follows the usher, right? Because he sees the usher gets uh, you know notified that there's a call. So Clark goes and he overhears this call. The usher thinks he's talking to Davis and he's like, I want $5,000 now to do this. And, uh, you know, Clark returns to the seat with the information that there's going to be another another, another tip of information during uh, another interruption during this uh, act, which we will, of course, later see play out. And once again, I really feel like he has to do all of Henderson's work here. This is where Henderson is his most short-sighted because he's so quick. He's like, I'll get the usher. And Clark's like, listen, <laughs> let him deliver the information. You can get the entire operation. You can potentially re- recover some of the money. <laughs> <laughs> and and Clark is also quick to say it's like it's not Davis it's Green and and again Henderson is very skeptical in the end he'll have to apologize uh, in, in that final scene but yeah it's not it's funny like for Henderson's first outing here I don't feel like he comes off great I cut him a lot of slack because I like I know where you know I know what his other appearances are like and sure. so it's like okay I have, I have affinity for the character and nothing horrible here but it's just Again, I feel like very short-sighted and, and really needs to have uh, a lot of dots connected for him. He is a bit of a hothead, it seems, you know, and um, it's it's funny that uh, that he needs to be talked down by by Clark in this instance. But, you know, maybe it does help to at least establish, even though, you know, these are far from serialized stories. And in, in, in essence, every one of these are bottle episodes, save for like the, the, the pilot, of course. But, um, you know, it, maybe it just helps to establish like a baseline of trust that Henderson will have for Clark pretty much in every other episode of the show. So, I mean, I don't know if they necessarily had that in mind, if like if they were really building the structures out when they were writing this episode, but it kind of worked out that way. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to give it the, uh, the benefit of the doubt as well. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's a good point. And look, even if it wasn't intended, I think it has that effect right now, as you watch the other episodes to follow, it's like, okay, well now we kind of have some background for why he would defer to Clark in certain instances. Yeah. And also just even within the context of this, it, it, you know, it builds up Clark further, right? It shows a commanding presence, uh, you know, that he can have. And, you know, the other thing that I always come back to, whether it's the serials or, or, or this show in particular the position that the Daily Planet and its reporters occupy in the city is a very high, revered one. And you see this time and again. I mean, anytime Lois and Clark are going anywhere and they're introducing themselves as reporters for the planet, I mean, there's there's this this level of reference and access that they have. And and even Perry, I mean, Perry's, you know, he's hobnobbing with, you know, various officials and like he's a source of you know, uh, of information, of information, but also, you know, someone whose opinion is solicited by those in power. So like you really, so maybe that the kind of speaks to that as well here, again, just the sort of the position that these reporters occupy in the city. Sure. Yeah. The, the trust in the journalistic institution that is the daily planet, you know, someone watching that today, maybe it would be a little bit alien to see such a, a permeated level of respect for a journalistic institution, but, uh, it does certainly come across that um, that the Daily Planet is viewed by the people of Metropolis as an arbiter of trust, you know. And, and granted, that's a place that it largely occupies, no matter what Superman media you absorb. But it does help to emphasize just uh, just how much trust uh, a lot of the city's institutions place in the Daily Planet for good reason. Yeah. So absolutely. why why shouldn't the viewer? 
Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that it works on a number of levels. So Clark ducks out. And before Henderson goes to arrest the usher, we have this little exchange between Lois and Henderson where she's like, where does he disappear to all the time? He's like, oh, maybe he ducks into an alley and he takes off his clothes and he becomes <laughs> Superman. And, you know, she laughs it off. So, you know, that's not coming from Clark in this instance, but it's like this, uh, you know, quick to dismiss this notion and sort of play it off as a joke there. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that, to me, when Clark is included in those conversations, like it's it's just charming to me because it all comes down to Reeves' delivery. You know, the way that he laughs up, well, maybe, you know, like I always say, two heads are better than one. There's just something that, uh, that you just immediately get behind when you see this guy uh, exude such confidence. And, uh, and it's something that, uh, I would like to see emphasized in more uh, other media adaptations of Superman. I don't feel like you get this quite as much these days, but maybe you should, you know, I think there is something to be, people are so afraid of turning Superman into a paragon that, uh, you know, maybe giving him too much trust would be counterintuitive to the certain kinds of stories that people want to tell with him. But there is something to be said about, uh, the the certitude that uh, a, a hero like him has, because not a lot of heroes these days have that kind of confidence in in the same way. So what's old is new again, as far as I'm. That's a little bit of a tangent, but still. No, no, I, I I'm with you, and you know, both as Superman and, and as Clark. I mean, that's the thing that. <sighs> You're looking at this was part of my article as well. Like looking at you know modern Superman on television, I again I, I find no bigger Smallville fan <laughs> than yours truly, and uh, love Superman and Lois. But it's like you know this is a story. You know Smallville is before for the most part before we get yeah. to the Daily Planet, and right. then Superman and Lois is after. And so you know there's this. I feel like there's this opportunity, you know, whether it's through access to Adventures of Superman or, you know, or a new project, right, to really lean into Clark, the reporter, and really, again, I know, you know, Lois and Clark, you know, definitely focused a lot on the reporting side, but to kind of give an updated, more relevant, you know, resonant version of that today, I w- I'm with you, man. I think there, I think there's really an opportunity for that. I mean, look, the ultimate edition of Batman v Superman gave us a lot more of Clark reporting you know which which was great and i so it's like yeah more stuff like that would would be great yeah yeah and you know granted lois and clark wanted to emphasize something different you know it was really like the the time that it came out it was really able to explore like maybe the more risque elements of what a relationship with a kryptonian might be like uh and you know for when it was on it was on you know it did it did some some pretty interesting stuff with that but the uh, the certitude of Superman himself was certainly not as much of a component of that show as it is in this one. And, um, you know, in the right hands, uh, feel like that's ripe for a modern spin. Maybe the the forthcoming animated show might lean into that. Who knows? But uh, we we will see. That would be cool. I would love to see that. I would love to see that. So we have our big climax now in Green's office. Davis confronts Green. He's like, the police came to my place. Like I really, Like, he realizes now that Green was setting him up for this. And, uh, and then Superman makes his entrance. And what I thought w- was interesting here, I think it's, I think it's green, right. Who says, whoever you are <laughs> right now, again, this is a little incongruous cause you're going, you know, if we're going by airing order and haunted lighthouse, like he lands on the coast guard ship and it's like, Oh, it's Superman, anything you need. 
But, you know, you're looking at something like this, this definitely tracks more, especially as an early first season episode where, you know, theory Superman only made his debut fairly recent. It's not like everybody knows who he is or what he looks like. Yeah. Uh, though you would imagine they at least still would have heard it would have been a thing. But in any event, uh, yeah. it, it was just I, I like that little that little flavor of like, oh, like who like whoever you are, he's not yet known the way he will be. Right. And, uh, you know, Green directs uh, Davis to to shoot Superman. But Superman is quick to say, like, Davis, like, you're, you know, you're in the clear here. <laughs> like, this is your opportunity. Uh, and Davis lowers the gun. And then, of course, Green goes for his and fires at Superman. And they bounce off and uh, uses X-ray vision to find the money uh, in, in, in the safe there. Yeah, I mean, did, I know I said before, this felt a little anticlimactic. Did it did it for you or did it, was it, was it a satisfying finish to the episode? I found it satisfying personally just because I liked the added, if it wasn't going to lean as hard on, on the action, I liked the concept of Superman appealing to, uh, Rosselli's better angels, you know, because it's not something that is emphasized a lot in, in certain other media adaptations of Superman that do emphasize, uh, the action component, um, which is easy to do with a character as capable as Superman. But I liked that there was at least a little bit of service given to the idea that uh, in addition to being a physical force, he also does have the ability to potentially talk people down and to make them see, hey, there's a better path forward here. You don't have to do this thing, especially just because this guy is telling you to, uh, you know, think for a second and and choose a better path so i appreciated that component of it it to me that helped make it ring a little bit more truthful but i can see where you're coming from i mean it does kind of end with a bit of a dud all things considered on the action front but uh, and, and and again really weird seeing a, a perry white shoot superman with a gun but um but i appreciated the, the uh that there was a little bit more of a message there uh in, in the in the final moments yeah, no, that was a nice touch for sure. And like I said, that that rescue of Jimmy earlier on, that gave us a, a good dose of action. So I think it, it balances out just fine. Uh, and then we have our little wrap up in Henderson's office where Henderson gives his uh, apology to Clark and uh, Perry calls and, and you know, uh, Lois is, you know, again, giving Clark a hard time. Like, how did you know that it was green on the phone and who's on the phone now? And Clark's 50 plus, Perry, we got to get back to the office and... Uh, that's that's sort of the, the note that we end on. W- was there anything that we didn't talk about with respect to this episode that that you wanted to? Uh, not particularly. I think that one of the other things that I like about the um, the the ending of the episode is that you know it does kind of end pretty abruptly because Clark says, you know, if we're not back at the planet in fifteen minutes, we're going to be fired, and it. it there's like a whole other kind of quasi sense of, of uh, truthful irreverence to Perry White's temper. You know, we're going to get that a lot more in future episodes. And John Hamilton's booming baritone to me now is inextricably linked to Perry White. Um, and, you know, I, I do have to give Lawrence Fishburne credit because there are a few times where he does feel very like Hamiltonian in the way that he delivered certain lines as Perry White, which I thought was great. But, um, I just liked that it ended on a little bit of a humorous note with that dynamic in play. And, you know, I, I have such reverence for that dynamic that I thought that that was fun. And I liked, yeah, no, I'm with you. And I liked, I liked Clark rushing Lois out and it, it just felt playful. I, I feel like they, the, the two of them really brought something that was 
maybe sort of there on the page, but could have just fallen flat. But I feel like they really, you know, there was that, that little spark there. And I guess I always look for that because that's, and, and like, I know there was no room for that in this show. Like this show was not unlike Lois and Clark, <laughs> right? This was not built for romance for probably for a variety of reasons. And I, and I get that. And I know that as I'm watching these episodes, but it's like here and there where there are these little hints, like when we get to the no holds barred episode with the boxers, like there's this moment right, where, yeah. you know, Perry makes a comment to Clark. He's like, oh, are you jealous? Cause like Lois is going to dinner with the box or something like that. And it's, it's like one of the only times that I can recall where there's even any acknowledgement of something like this. And so when we get these little breadcrumbs or just these little playful moments, uh, even if it's mostly just the actors kind of bringing that, that playfulness to it, I always love to see it. Uh, so yeah, it was a, yeah, a little bit of an abrupt ending. I don't disagree, but I like, <laughs> I like that the little, the, you know, little, little button of them uh, uh, rushing out of the office. It was, it was yeah, a good all, episode. Yeah, definitely. And, and also just generally, you know, that kind of playfulness really seems absent from like Superman movies, for instance, like if, if the, the playfulness that you can get, not just between Lois and Clark, but really that permeates the, the entire Superman side of the DC universe, you see it most often in the comics, like the comics, especially really like over the past 25 years or so, where it's really leaned into the interpersonal dynamics while leaning into the strengths of the Superman concept, like the best Superman comics over the past 25 years do have components of playfulness to them. They're fun to read. That's why we keep coming back to them. And not that there is uh, anything invalid about leaning into like stoic iconography, but the movies by and large really do choose to lean in that and overlook the, the sheer fun that you can have with a Superman story. You know, there is this, I don't think there's anything wrong with acknowledging that a lot of these people in Metropolis and certainly these major characters have a bit of a safety net in the form of Superman, you know, and that gives them license to do things that are probably pretty funny. So I like how this show, uh, you know, it emphasized that. And again, I do think that there is something here uh, in terms of like structure for potential future exploitations. I'm with you. There's, there's a lot, there's a lot here that could still be mined. I think there's so much value. And, you know, when we talk about this stronger, confident, capable Clark, I think that al it just allows you to do more. It allows you to spend as much time with Clark as we do. And it's like, yes, was this likely born out of the fact that they couldn't afford to show Superman all the time? Sure. But it, it works nonetheless. And I think when you have a Clark like this, who's, who's this charming and confident, it, you know, you can have like that playfulness works. There's more of an opportunity for it. Um, you know, and not, not again, not to knock the Christopher Reeve performance is one of the most iconic when, oh, when it course. comes to superhero yeah. performance, probably the most iconic, but you know, I don't know that, you know, it's just a different, it's a totally different dynamic and flavor when he's, when he's that bumbling. So yeah, I, uh, I, I, I love them both, but yeah, there's something about this that is just endlessly appealing. And, and I agree with you. I think there's, there's room to, to do something like this. I knew. I mean, granted, I'm, I'm super biased. So like the scene in Superman, the movie right after the flight where he takes his glasses off and he grows a foot, you know, to me, that is uh, an acting performance that, you know, give me Marlon Brando as, as, uh, as Vito Corleone, sure, any day of the week, but it's not that to me, mm -hmm. you know, it's just like, that's just such a, an, a wonderful delineation that worked for that 
that event, that film, there is just so much more that has not been touched really since this show. Uh, and George Reeves just really emphasizes how you, when you have a performer that has the acumen that he brings to the table, there's just something that's so fun to watch when he is working. And uh, you know, it, it's, it's the emotional resonance. I mean, there's a, there, an episode uh, involving a dog in, in the future that is far more emotional than it has any right to be because of George Reeves' performance, you know, but he has the peaks and valleys of emotion that certainly surprised me the first time I watched this show and just helps to emphasize how key his approach was to everything in terms of this show's identity. Absolutely. Now, were there any scenes that you would, you'd have given a rewrite to going back to that uh, initial question or no, maybe the recognition of, uh, of Rosselli as Rosselli, um, because it does seem like there might be a little bit of incongruity between how, uh, how one of the, the criminals would have, uh, made him, but overall, you know, just in terms of 25 minutes of a, of a 1950s Superman show, I actually think this episode is pretty solid. Um, you know, it's fun. It's irreverent in all the right places. Uh, it does have like these short punctuations of action. It does have, the, as I, as we alluded to before, the pressure valve turning up in all the right places. Um, I can forgive, I mean, and you can too, you said as much, I mean, we can forgive the coincidence that is at play here. Um, I do think that this is a, a deceptively good episode of Superman, all things considered. So if I had to rewrite something, maybe it was just like how Rosselli was ID'd. But beyond that, I actually think it's pretty good. All right. Well, on that note, now I'm really going to put you on the spot. So the last thing we do in these episodes is we rate them. I have a, a, a system based on fedoras because I love the fedora look. <laughs> yeah. uh, so on a scale of one to five fedoras, of course, five being the best, and you can give halves, uh, where, how, how many fedoras would you rate this episode? I gave it four. I think four is, is pretty solid. I mean, this isn't the best that the show is going to be, but it's certainly far from the worst that the show can be at times. Um, but I mean, just in terms of the, uh, the order that's in front of this episode to establish precedent for the rest of the series going forward, it does it really effectively. And, uh, it emphasizes everything that you need to know about the key players while also having a, a surprisingly sophisticated plot for them to uncover uh, all because of a talkative dummy. So I, I, I actually have quite a lot of reverence for this show. And uh, yeah, I think I'll, I think I'll stick with four for doors out of five. Good man. All right. I don't disagree with anything you said. I'm going to be a little, a little more uh, restrained. I'm going to go with three. Uh, but I, again, I don't disagree with anything. I think this was a very effective episode and I don't know. Have you been following Talkville, the Tom Welling, Michael Rosenbaum, Smallville rewatch podcast? Here and there, not religiously, but I'm trying to keep up with the general gist. It's it's been fun, and I think you know one of the things that Welling always comes back to, especially when they rate the episodes, is whether or not he could show it to someone and say, "Hey, this is Smallville. Like, if you like mm-hmm. this, you'll like the show." And kind of applying a, a similar model here, yeah, I think this is definitely an episode, where, unlike The Haunted Lighthouse, where you can show <laughs> this to someone. And even just from my own experience, I remember when I was first watching season one, enjoying the premiere, great origin story, though there were you know, there were a few <laughs> funny bits which we talked about in that episode. And then going to Haunted, I really struck, the first time I really struggled through Haunted Lighthouse, it was, it was, by the time I was done, I was like, is 
is this the show? And I remember <laughs> then, you know, the case of the talkative dummy really helped, you know, get me back on track and, and kind of bring me around on it. So it, it's a very strong episode and I think it does a good job of setting up what's to come. So, uh, yeah, that's a three is, is still a very, in, in my mind, still a very solid three. And, uh, and, and I'm a big fan of this episode. Yeah. Well said. Uh, what are the podcasts that you are involved with that you would like to direct folks to? Uh, so the predominant one that I'm a part of right now is actually a video show called the comic binge. Um, it's just on YouTube. If you search the comic binge, you can find it. And it is just a celebration of, of the medium, you know, um, my friend and, and co-host and really the guy that created the channel, Paul Herman, uh, we've been podcasting together for the better part of, uh, 11 years now. And, um, we live reasonably close to each other in the Seattle area and, we just have very different tastes, but similar appreciations for comic book storytelling. And uh, we just try and highlight things that people can and should jump into or uh, stories or ongoing stories that are worthy of, of taking the binge. Uh, most recently, we uh, did an episode on Daredevil Yellow uh, by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. It's kind of a modernized retelling of the first six issues of uh, of the original Daredevil series from the from the early to mid nineteen sixties, and uh, it was fun. You know, we we always try and go as deep on things as we can. We try and have a varied list of guests, and it's really just a a, a, ch a chance for us every week to take an hour and celebrate why we love comics as much as we do. So, the comic binge is the prime the primary show. Um, I'm also Part of a podcast called discovery debrief which is a star trek podcast and we do episode recaps and franchise discussions about modern star trek and sometimes we delve into the franchise's past uh maybe we'll take a look at old episodes that are applicable to new ones and things so uh yeah those those, those are those are probably the two that i would point people toward very cool i hope people will check that out you'll also be a guest on digging for kryptonite later this fall you mentioned before we talked about uh Camelot Falls and Black Rain. Yes. People will hear that a little later this fall. So I hope people will tune in for that. Uh, folks, thank you so much uh, for tuning in. I really hope you are enjoying another exciting episode in The Adventures of Superman. We will be back in two weeks. I will be joined by Rich, Wa Rich, Rich Wagner, sorry, <laughs> Rich Wagner from the Heroes Home Base podcast. Uh, and we'll be talking about episode four, uh, Mystery of the Broken Statues. Uh, so make sure you come back in two weeks for that. And until then, adventures await. Support the show and receive exclusive additional content, including my DC Movie Rewatch podcast at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato. Thank you to all patrons for enabling me to produce this show. Also, be sure to explore the other shows within the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network, which is home to Digging for Kryptonite, another exciting episode in The Adventures of Superman, Summoning the Zords, and My Comic Shop History, all hosted by yours truly. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Visit flatsquirrelproductions.com for more. Thank you all.